welcome to Recovery, The Hero's Journey. Your host is Dr. Patricia Halligan. If addiction or prescription drug dependence affects you directly or indirectly, whether it's you, a family member, or a close friend, stay tuned over the next hour as we explore substance use disorders, process addictions, and prescription drug dependence. We'll be discussing the painful reality behind these disorders and what can be done to help. Now, here is Dr. Patricia Halligan. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Recovery, the Hero's Journey. Today's topic is opioid use disorder and how to treat it. This year, the CDC reported almost 90,000 deaths from drug overdoses during the COVID-19 pandemic. That's an increase of 29%, the largest annual increase ever. These are mostly young people dying between the ages of 18 and 35, and many of their deaths could have been prevented. We have life-saving medications and decades of research to back them up, but due to limited access and stigma, people aren't getting the help that they need. I am super excited to introduce our guest today, Dr. Jeffrey Junig, and he will help us clarify the best treatment practices for opioid use disorder. Dr. Junig is an MD-PhD, a fellow of the American Society of Addiction Medicine, and assistant clinical professor at the Medical College of Wisconsin. He was an early adopter of using buprenorphine to treat opioid use disorder and has long promoted greater use of buprenorphine through his blog and forum at suboxonetalk.com. He practices psychiatry and addiction medicine through his private practice at Fond du Lac Psychiatry. He earned his PhD in neuroscience from the University of Rochester and graduated with honors from the University of Rochester School of Medicine and Dentistry. He became board certified in anesthesiologist in anesthesiology and worked in anesthesia and pain medicine for 10 years. Dr. Jenny returned to residency in psychiatry at the Medical College of Wisconsin, and now he is board certified in psychiatry and addiction medicine. Dr. Jeffrey Junig, my friend, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm delighted to have you, and I can't think of a better person to uh, discuss opioid use disorder with. Uh, I first heard of you, Dr. Junig, through a patient of mine who said he's reading a magnificent blog, SuboxoneTalk.com, uh, and he said he's this doctor. Uh, he's an anesthesiologist turned psychiatrist, and he's an addiction psychiatrist, and he is answering People, uh, people's questions from all over the world, people suffering from a heroin addiction or an addiction to pain pills. And because of his background in anesthesia, in anesthesia he's able to understand the science behind these medications. And I, I went to your blog and I read the answers that you gave these people struggling with opioid use disorder. And I was blown away by how much care, painstakingly written answers you gave, very, very human and warm and uh, very generous, and I, I just, I've, I've been reading your blog for years, and my patients have benefited immensely. And I was based in Rochester, New York, and uh, you're, you were in Michigan, so your your words have traveled. Um, t- tell me a little bit. How does a an anesthesiologist uh, become an addiction psychiatrist? What's the path? Well, sure. Well, thank thank you, Dr. Halligan. And uh, you know, we have some other things in common too. My my children uh, went to U of R, and I attended there years ago. Um, so it was uh, it was nice meeting you um, years ago, and yes. uh, and staying in touch. Mm-hmm. Um, 
what I'd like to do is talk a little bit about that progression, um, share my history a bit, um, and maybe just introduce a couple uh, a couple terms that I think will make it easier when we talk about the different treatments available. Um, so, um, you know, I, I uh, uh, went to medical school out east, uh, um, and uh, after I completed grad school, medical school, uh, went to residency in Philadelphia, moved back to Wisconsin, uh, and worked as an anesthesiologist for 10 years. I came to Wisconsin because I wanted my children to be closer to their grandparents, and, um, and I grew up in this area. Um, and, um, you know, people, I think, uh, a lot of people think of addiction as something um, that happens as a consequence of hard times. And I, I think that might be the case for some people, but it wasn't really, I don't think, the case for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also don't kind of buy the flip side of that. I think sometimes people um, think that if we just get rid of this underlying thing, the addiction will go away. And uh, I don't really see that in my practice either. I, 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 I see addiction more as a, a primary uh, condition um, that's, that's all its own. Um, in my case, things were going pretty well. I, um, I enjoyed my job. Um, I have a wonderful wife, um, great kids. Um, and um, I was chief of our department of anesthesia. I believe I was uh, you know, well-respected uh, in my job. And, um, <clears throat> excuse me, um, things were going well. I was making good money. And, um, and then I developed a cold. And uh, this was in about um, oh, the year 2000, 2001, somewhere around there. And I took cough medicine, Phenergan with codeine cough syrup um, for the cold, which at the time wasn't something I considered all that risky. Um, back then, at least in Wisconsin, you could get codeine over the counter uh, in cough medicine without a prescription. And um, the one thing I noticed though, when I took it, um, it was different than when I had it in medical school. When I, when I had my wisdom teeth taken out in medical school, I remember um, the codeine wasn't um, pleasant. It, it treated the pain, but it upset my stomach. It wasn't something that I could ever imagine um, getting addicted to. Mm-hmm. Um, this time though, um, it was pleasant. I, I remember falling asleep uh, with this kind of warm feeling coming over me, um, you know, uh, felt more relaxed and drowsy um, and then um, it felt good. So, mm-hmm. um, so I kept doing it um, probably longer than I needed to. Yeah. Um, my dose increased over a week or two. Um, and, and I thought I'd step away for a moment there and just um, introduce the idea of tolerance that, um, you know, our, our nerves communicate with each other, our neurons, um, through receptors. And um, one nerve will release a chemical that acts at another nerve through a receptor, kind of like a, a key entering a lock and turning it. Mm-hmm. And um, um, there are certain chemicals that, that function in that way that um, will serve a number of different tasks if they're all caused by one thing. And if you, if you bear with me, I'm thinking of um, uh, a caveman being attacked by a mountain lion. It's kind of the classic story uh, for how endorphins work in the body. So mm-hmm. um, we have these natural chemicals called endorphins. And during trauma, 
they're released by neurons uh, to communicate with other neurons. And the main thing they do in the spinal cord and in the brain, they relieve pain. Um, but they do other things too. They shut down uh, the motility of the uh, gastrointestinal tract um, to save energy. Um, blood flow that would go to um, the colon instead goes to skeletal muscle, goes to the skin to help uh, relieve or, or lose heat. Um, um, the uh, uh, endorphins also create a sense of calm. Um, they relieve fatigue. Um, they shift the body's response to carbon dioxide. So um, the carbon dioxide level can go up a bit and a person doesn't have to breathe quite as hard. So basically uh, the trauma triggers all those things. And when a person takes codeine, when I took codeine, um, it acted at those receptors and had all of those effects. Um, I wasn't being attacked by a mountain lion, but um, I was ready for one if it had happened. Mm -hmm. um, the body though, in response to, uh, so, so basically um, the codeine is acting at these receptors. Heroin would act at the same receptors. Morphine, we call them opioid receptors and the drugs that work at them, opioids, of course. Um, the body uh, recognizes that there's an increase in this opioid tone. These neurons are firing more quickly than usual, and the body has a way to fix things that are broken, an amazing uh, trait of, of the human body. Um, and what, what the neurons do, they change um, the receptors to make them less sensitive to opioids. Uh, small molecules are attached inside the neuron to the inside of the receptor to change their conformation a little bit. And so now to get that increase in opioid tone, I have to take more codeine. And, and that's what happened. That um, makes sense. You've got to take more to keep up. And you know, eventually a person ends up taking a very large amount. Um, and the flip side of that is when that codeine wears off, my own endorphins are no longer um, strong enough to act at these changed opioid receptors. So when the codeine wears off, the tone, the opioid tone in my body goes to zero. And um, all of the things that opioids caused are now reversed. And so, and we call that withdrawal. So, um, gastrointestinal activity goes up, there's nausea, there's diarrhea, mood goes down, a person becomes very depressed, um, their temperature regulation is off, um, and, and they hurt all over because the, the, the basic tone that normally helps reduce just the, the background pain is gone. And um, because of withdrawal, uh, the person or I, I had a feeling that I, I had to do something um, which was to take more opioid and, and to treat that withdrawal. And, and what I'm describing here is chemical dependency, not addiction. Mm -hmm. um, but it's the first start of the process. And I find myself going back and wondering, why didn't I just stop? And I, I'm not sure why um, that is. I, uh, I, uh, when you're in, when I was in that position um, that didn't seem like an option it just uh, it just didn't I didn't see where things were heading um, and um, and opioid withdrawal I hear Dr. Junig is one of the worst withdrawals known to man and it's not like you just have to tough it out for three days and it's over it can go on for months right 
two or three months um, for it to totally end. And, um, and that's and part of it too. And it's excruciating, right? This it's, is excruciating. It's just not a little bit of upset stomach. This is a uh, restless legs and you can't do anything. You're kind of lying on a couch and you can't move and you have no motivation and you just, you're so uncomfortable. How much of your mind is obsessed with drug craving when you're in the middle of an opioid withdrawal? Well, that's, and that's a good point. You know, in the middle of it, um, because of the depression and the mental part of it, you, you really don't see the options as well as right. I think you would. Um, and I remember waking up at 3 a.m. As, as the opioid uh, that I had in my body would wear off. Um, you know, eventually I, I uh, progressed at work to uh, taking uh, opioids that uh, instead of disposing of them at the end of the day, I thought that would be a good idea and that I wouldn't get in trouble for, um, you know, having bottles of uh uh, cough syrup lying around. Um, so just, just stupid decisions at the time. Um, and mentally, um, you know, what, what happened in my case, and I think happens, um, with a lot of people, um, I, I think of it as living on the surface. Um, all of the, the things I was doing, I knew they were wrong. I had, um, I had always considered myself to be a, a good guy. I you know, went to church when I was growing up. I was a Boy Scout, uh, did well in school. Um, I had saved a woman's life when I was 19 and uh, who was drowning in a river. And I, oh, you wow. know, I, I pictured myself as this good guy. And now yeah. I'm, I'm lying. I'm, you know, I'm doing things that, that I was just disgusted by. And, and, and that's how I see addiction developing. Um, this split um, starts setting up where there's the real part of me or the person that I, I that, that was really uh, doing these bad things. And the part of me on the surface, just cruising along, um, trying to pretend um, that everything was okay. And even when it was obvious that things were going to hit a wall, um, you know, I, uh, it, near the end, I was just making up names of patients who didn't exist and um, signing narcotics out. And, and uh, even doing that, um, you know, I got away with it for another month or so. Um, but um, I, I, I would just keep going forward. And um, I, I think people who met me at that time probably thought I was you know, insincere, cocky, um, irritable, um, kind of disconnected from you, who dis you really were disconnected, exactly and, and preoccupied with just treating the withdrawal and preventing the withdrawal and treating the addiction like Nora Volkow or Alan Leshner uh, from NIDA would say, you know, the drugs had hijacked your brain and this is a brain disease. Exactly. And, and that's, that's the addiction part, you know, the, 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 the physical part, um, you know, is certainly part of it, but it's that, that mental, you know, the physical we can treat and get rid of in a couple months, but the, the, it's the mental aspect that really um, is still a big part of my life today, I think, in some, in, in some, uh, in some ways. It's Not really humbling, isn't it? I mean, I don't, I mean, you're kind of intimidating, uh, Mr. <laughs> MD, PhD in <laughs> neuroscience. Uh, I mean, could you be any smarter? Uh, it is not a, a, a function of somebody's intelligence, and it's not a moral failing. It's not a function of willpower, is it? This is truly a brain disease. And I love how you say my opioid receptors were changed by the uh, duration and the amount of narcotics that I you know, was taking back then. And I became uh, watching myself. That was not me. 
Yeah. And, you know, I, I do well in school, um, but I always tell patients that I'm seeing that uh, being smart isn't, isn't any help um, during addiction. If anything, I think it gets in the way because it, right. it leads you to, to think you can handle things that you find out later um, you, you weren't able to, to pull off like you thought you could. What kind of treatment did you get? Um, so eventually, uh, um, when everything hit the fan, um, had a meeting with the CEO, with my wife, with someone else from uh, my department, and I went into a residential-based treatment the next day. Um, I was very sick for the first uh, few weeks, uh, not sleeping at night, and um, I lost 30 pounds. I was already very, uh, oh, I'm always wow. very thin. Um, but appetite, uh, you know, I, I, I learned a lot during that time, and I, I I, one thing I learned is it's, it's very unpleasant to try to eat when you have no appetite. Um, but mm -hmm. I, I would just try to get food in me. Um, but I was there for about three and a half months. Um, it was a, a, a great experience. And I, I, it's too bad that everybody can't do that type of experience because... Uh, 28 days is not enough, is it? Oh, 28 days is nothing. And mm -hmm. even three and a half months, I mean, that's, that's the problem with residential treatment is yeah. that uh, I, I was in no way um, fully treated um, after uh, at that point. I, I was released actually the day after 9-11 happened. So I'll always remember exactly, um, you know, the day. Um, oh, but wow. um, so I, it was kind of a chaotic time uh, for everybody, I think. Mm -hmm. um, but, um, but yeah, and then I'd, um, I, I did some um, well, odd jobs in medicine. Actually, I, I uh, worked with um, the first people hired uh, for the Transportation Security Administration, um, doing physicals on those people. I'd go into a, um, to a hotel where they were bringing them all through and, um, and do physicals. Um, and then decided after a year to go back uh, to residency in psychiatry. Um, so that's, uh, that's how I got here. Um, and you have, I think, uh, just about 20 years in recovery, right? It's been 20 years, yeah. It'll be, oh my gosh, congratulations, I that's amazing. Well, thank you. Yeah, it'll be in September. I guess it'll be 20 years in September this year. So, How long um, have you been treating people with opioid addiction in your private practice as an addiction uh, psychiatrist? When I first uh, got out of psychiatry and uh, applied for jobs in this local area, and I really, I really wanted to stay around. I didn't really, you know, there's a, a thought of moving and kind of running away from my history, but I, I didn't really want to do that. My kids were in school too. Um, but I, I felt this pressure that I should be an addiction doctor. And I, I, I at the time I resented it. I, I, I wanted to be a psychiatrist and um, I felt like I was kind of being pigeonholed to some extent. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So I worked in the, the prison system for a few years, but at the same time, I did start a private practice and I started using buprenorphine and, um, and I was just amazed at that medication. I, I would compare it to back when I did labor epidurals and how uh, one, of the, one of the fun things about being an anesthesiologist is that the things you do really work. Um, they always work and they work right away. Um, and um, you walk in a room where someone is really suffering in pain, you put this epidural in and, um, and you're, you're the hero in 30 minutes. And buprenorphine, it's not quite that fast, but compared to other uh, illnesses in psychiatry, it was just amazing to me how well that medication worked for people. And um, I had 
patients coming back and you know thanking me and saying things that that uh, you know doctors just love to hear. You know, you, gosh, you changed my life. I can't thank you enough. Um, it, I, feel, I, I feel like myself again, and exactly. uh, there's no no monkey on my back anymore, and the cravings are gone, and the withdrawal's gone, right? And sometimes yeah. within 24 hours, right? Yeah, absolutely. And they look better, you know, when you first, I mean, you know how it is when you first see people and some people look like they're near death practically. And, um, yeah, you know, cause they're often in withdrawal when they come in and, um, and, and yeah, sometimes, sometimes even, uh, in the course of the afternoon, I, I used to do all the inductions here in the office. And, um, so just in several hours seeing people, uh, when their withdrawal was relieved, um, was, was very gratifying. I, re- I remember, uh, people telling me it was like having a full-time job, having a drug addiction and uh, it consumed, you know, 90 to 95% of their thoughts, right? Where am I going to get it? Uh, it, when am I going to use it? Uh, how do I prevent withdrawal, right? Uh, how do I leave work? If I'm on a family vacation and I run out, you know, I'm leaving Disney sure. World, I'm going downtown Orlando looking for drugs, it, and it's all consuming, and all of a sudden they're freed up. There's, most of my patients are surprised that they feel that good in that short a time, right? Do Absolutely. you find the same thing? Sure. They, I think, you know, some people assume that there, you know, there must be some scam element to it or something that it's over, you know, the, the, the benefit is overstated or something. But, um, but yeah, you know, I, I totally agree with you that, you know, during, during the using days, um, it's just about scrambling constantly, um, just a constant scramble. And while you're doing that, you're also um, trying to um, maintain all the rest of your life, which, of course, is, is second to, you know, the primary thing, which is avoid getting sick, because if right. if you don't do that, everything falls apart. You, you can't function. You can't walk. So yeah. this was the hook for you, huh? Prescribing buprenorphine and, and watching uh, you know, this medication changed people's lives. And that's why you stayed with addiction uh, psychiatry. Absolutely. I mean, you know, addiction, uh, treating addiction to any substance is gratifying in its own way. But, but uh, you know, I think some addictions like alcoholism, what I can do uh, as an outpatient doc is is relatively limited. I, I think that's something that really benefits more from a residential stay. Mm-hmm. Um, but with opioids, um, just the the way um, the way recovery works, I think, is very amenable to uh, to outpatient treatment, um, and especially you know buprenorphine. That the, the um, aspects of that particular medication make it just ideal um, for for this role. Absolutely. Especially people that can't afford to go to residential treatment, you know, and a five to seven day detox is not going to work. Research shows that and they have to work and they can't take off, uh, you know, uh, three to six months. So, yeah, yeah, it's it's a wonderful medication. Yeah. Residential treatment, you know, in general, um, thinking of different types of treatment, I think they all have their pros and cons. But Mm -hmm. often with residential treatment, you'll see... um, the, the advocates for that, you know, when, when buprenorphine first came out, um, I did an interview with someone for the Addiction Professional, this magazine. I was working as a medical director for a, um, a treatment program, a residential treatment program. And um, the title of the article was Out to Change Attitudes Toward Buprenorphine. And one line in there said, um, 
that uh, um, Dr. Junig said that the counselors at our at our treatment program know nothing about the good side of buprenorphine because they they saw buprenorphine as some orange substance that people snort, and, you know, which really doesn't happen all that often. But that's that's how they perceived it. The counselors there. Um, I forget where I was going with that. I like what you brought up, though. You're basically saying uh, people are afraid to prescribe it because they're afraid of diversion. And I read a statistic. The DEA said that buprenorphine is less than 1% of the diverted, all the diverted drugs in America. Less than 1%. People don't use buprenorphine to get high on the street. Well, yeah, it, when you look at how it works, you know, one dose lasts several days. And I mean, the only way a person could really use it to get high, they would have to, first of all, they'd have to have no opioids in their system. They'd have right. to have no significant tolerance. They'd have right. to take it. Then they'd have to wait a few days to take it again. I, I was going to mention with residential treatment, I lost my train of thought, but yeah. they, they often use these um, studies of doctors in treatment to say that residential treatment is, you know, the best approach. And they'll say that success rates among doctors treated uh, are like 60% or 80%. The problem, doctors aren't anything like typical patients. And it's not that doctors are, are, you know, smarter or anything like that or more motivated. It's that with doctors, you have the hook of their license and with pharmacists and with nurses. Um, So for me, when I got out of residential treatment, I still had six years of monitoring ahead of me. And during those six years, I was in group, I was an individual, I had to go to meetings, I was drug tested twice a week. You know, that went on for years and years and years. And you just can't do that with most people. They're, they're going to walk away from it. I, I love that you're bringing that up. It's the drug testing that keeps physicians and pilots and nurses and pharmacists clean, well, in recovery, Absolutely. right? And Absolutely. monitoring for five years, right? If you're sure. a health professional. So, and, and you're in drug testing maybe four times a month at yeah. random, right? You, you, yeah. you have to call someplace every day or you get a call saying today is the day. And if you don't drop a urine, uh, you know, that's a mark against your license. And yeah. even attorneys, right? They're, they have, uh, you know, uh, I guess the licensing board has leverage there too, right? And, sure. and that helps. That makes a big difference. You know, that was the one thing. I mean, I didn't want to lose my family, obviously, but I, I did, I'd worked so hard uh, to get my license. And I, you know, I re- really feared if I lose that, uh, then I'm really starting over. So, um, so yeah, it certainly, it wasn't the only thing, but it was certainly a big part of my motivation. Um, you know, just, just something I, I, I knew with that going on there, that, that relapse wasn't any type of option. It wasn't something, you know, that I could ever consider because, um, yeah, for me, the testing was twice a week and uh, included And it's fentanyl. expensive too, right? Yeah, the, and, the testing. I mean, you're paying a couple of hundred dollars a month just to be drug tested. That's right. I, I had to pay for that. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Right? So yeah, residential treatment, mine ended up costing, residential isn't covered by a lot of insurance. They consider it not inpatient. And so um, back then, 20 years ago, my three months cost me over $60,000. And um, I used to have a little cottage in uh, on a lake in Wisconsin, and um, that's that went to pay for my treatment um, essentially. And, and you're so. right. And nowadays, uh, to go to, I'm thinking of uh, treatment centers that I refer people to. You're looking at you know thirty to thirty-five to forty thousand for the month. Now, yeah. we're going to have to take a short break. Uh, but you're listening to the Reco- uh, Recovery: The Hero's Journey, and our guest today is Dr. Uh, Jeffrey Junig, and we've just listened to his story. 
uh, and his thoughts on uh, buprenorphine. When we return, I'm going to ask Dr. Junig to outline the medications used of best practices for opioid use disorder. And uh, we'll also talk a little bit about stigma and shame and increasing access to buprenorphine. So we'll be right back. Thank you. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. Treatment of opioid use disorder is a CME-approved video for healthcare professionals. This comprehensive video covers how to talk to patients about three FDA-approved treatment options, the research behind each medication, and how to help patients choose the right medication for them. You'll learn everything you ever wanted to know about these treatment options to be able to treat patients in your office with ease. This video simplifies the prescribing of buprenorphine and includes buprenorphine home induction instructions for patients and pamphlets for patients and their families. Visit drpatriciahalligan.com for more information. Benzodiazepines, the epidemic we aren't talking about, is a CME-approved video for healthcare professionals. This very comprehensive video describes the dangers of taking benzodiazepines and Z-drugs long-term and teaches how to de-prescribe them safely and effectively. We outline how to talk to your patients before, during, and after a long, slow Valium taper, how to build your patient a village of support, and offer a de-prescribing toolkit. Find out more about this package and what it includes. Visit drpatriciahalligan.com. Helping you make informed decisions for your life. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Recovery, the Hero's Journey. If you or someone you love struggles with a substance use disorder or prescription drug dependence and would like information about resources that can help, please contact one of the following organizations. The American Academy of Addiction Psychiatry, the American Society of Addiction Medicine, or the Benzodiazepine Information Coalition. Now, back to recovery, the hero's journey. So, Dr. Junig, um, can I ask you now, what treatments are available for people addicted to opioids, and what's the best treatment? We talked a little bit about abstinence-based um, you know, there's been uh, some changes uh, with the medications over the years, mainly with buprenorphine, um, uh, methadone. So just to touch on each of those. So abstinence-based, um, I think of, uh, there's a term in, in science, um, in vitro or in situ. In vitro means in glass. And, and what happens in residential treatment uh, is similar to that. We take a person out of their normal environment and we we sit them you know in in the treatment setting and we we counsel the heck out of them you know art therapy exercise therapy um you know play therapy um just I, i'm forgetting many of them but all day long is working on yourself um and um, addressing uh, issues sometimes in group sometimes as an individual um i think of it as those shows the bachelor or the bachelorette in a way where um, they take two people that probably otherwise wouldn't even want to talk to each other and they put them in <laughs> Paris with a glass of wine and surprise, they fall in love and um, yep. then they send them back home. 
Um, and luckily, yep. we don't have to watch that part. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, <laughs> that's what I see as the problem with residential uh, treatment is that um, in that type of setting, um, it's not all that hard uh, to maintain sobriety. And then suddenly the person is right back in the middle of all the problems. Um, and we'd kind of mentioned how, you know, if you've got a professional license, that hook will keep the person engaged. And I think for those people, I think that's a, a good approach. Mm -hmm. um, I think for people who have to be out of an environment, like people who are trying to get away from alcohol, I think there's value in that. Um, but something that's been around since the 1960s is, is methadone-assisted treatment. Mm -hmm. And that used to be kind of an inner city uh, uh, thing. And now it's uh, something you see you know, more um, across the country in cities and in suburbs. And um, uh, you know, essentially, a person um, can start treatment the first day. They can walk in. They'll get a dose of 30 milligrams or less of methadone, and that will relieve some of their cravings, relieve some of their withdrawal. Usually in methadone-assisted treatment, um, especially early on, there's not a whole lot of concern about substance use. It's not like if you use, we're going to kick you out. Mm -hmm. um, and um, other drugs are, are sort of ignored. Benzos, are, there's more attention to, to benzodiazepines just because they can be dangerous in combination with methadone. Um, but the idea is a person gets their dose of methadone each day and um, that dose is usually increased um, to oh, an average of around 100 milligrams or so. And um, the person is in counseling. Um, and that can go on for, for months, but typically for years. Um, my problem with methadone, I've worked in the methadone field um, for six years. Um, I've seen great things in methadone programs. I guess I, my concern, you know, they, they've always kind of lived on the side of, of medicine. They don't make a big effort to, um, oh, be, uh, I don't know, integrated in a medical system. Mm -hmm. um, the uh, counselors are, are kind of run the show and the doctors are often, you know, the kind of semi-retired doctors. And I'm, I'm really generalizing here. Sure. Um, and what can happen, you know, patients can run up a dose. Uh, we have clinics in Wisconsin where people are taking 400 milligrams of methadone. And um, oh, wow. it, it, I mean, it, it's, it, it takes a year to get off 50 milligrams. And we have a, a sitting or a situation in Wisconsin where um, uh, the state insurance covers um, the $500 a month for methadone treatment very well, but most other programs or, or insurance companies don't. And so people can get kind of stuck where, you know, if the best job in the world comes along, um, they're going to lose their state insurance and start paying, you know, $500 a month. And so they would come in and say, you know, I, I, I'm going to lose my insurance. I got this great job. I got to get off methadone. And I'd point out, you know, it, it's going to take a year to get off 50 milligrams. And, and if they're on 200 milligrams, um, that's a huge challenge um, that most people don't take. And so mm -hmm. I just encourage people, if they go that route, to strongly consider many of these programs now offer buprenorphine. And it's a much safer medication. And if it works for you, 
um, it will give you the option when you're ready to leave that type of a uh, kind of intensive setting, it will give you the ability to step out without taking years and years. Um, That's you know, a great to, point. To do that. That's a great point. So keep the methadone dose, if you can, under 120, somewhere between 60 and 120. You know, it's, it's too bad that, you know, some states um, limit the methadone dose. And of course, I, you know, I never agree with, with, with legislators telling doctors how to practice. Right. Um, so there's, there's a, when you go to methadone meetings or meetings of the um, uh, ATOD, um, it is more of the methadone type of, of um, meetings than a, a group compared to ASAM. Mm-hmm. But when you go to their meetings, you'll hear these rallying cries where, you know, the speaker will say, what's the top dose of methadone? And the audience will chant, you know, no maximum or, I mean, it's almost a religion to not put a cap on it, Mm -hmm. but yeah, you know, you don't need more than a hundred, 120 milligrams. You know, I, I would really work hard. Patients come in with all this opioid hunger. So they of course, they want yes. to increase their dose. And they're so afraid you're not going to treat their withdrawal appropriately, sure. right? Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I have read studies where uh, the appropriate dose of Suboxone or of buprenorphine is 16 milligrams or greater. That is equally effective to methadone 60 to 120. Yeah. At lower doses uh, tend not to be as effective in preventing overdose deaths and relapse. Is that your understanding as well? Sure, absolutely. And, you know, Buprenorphine um, is a very unique molecule. So methadone is an agonist where the more you take, the higher the effect you get. You know, talking mm-hmm. about that opioid tone, there's no yeah. cap on it. Yeah. With buprenorphine, you know, as you mentioned, um, the, the top effect of buprenorphine is about equal to 40, 50 milligrams of methadone. So um, you don't get as high of an opioid effect, but What's unique about buprenorphine is what we call a partial agonist. There's a ceiling on the effect. So, and, and really once a person gets to four to eight milligrams of buprenorphine, that's about all of the opioid effect they're gonna get out of it. So we usually give 16 or 24 yep. because we want their blood level to be higher than that maximum effect. Then as they go through the day, some of the buprenorphine is metabolized, but the effect never changes. They always get that constant effect. And so, whereas with methadone, a person gets their dose, they usually get some drowsiness after four hours. Mm-hmm. And by, by 24 hours, they have some minor withdrawal. They wanna come in, get their dose right away. With buprenorphine, a person feels the same all the time, 24 hours a day. And um, how lovely, then they can go out and live their life. Absolutely. They, you know, I, I tell people, take it like a blood pressure medication. You know, you, right. it takes hours for the effect to come on. Um, and once they're on it, um, they get tolerant to the effect, so they don't feel anything. Um, and so essentially, when they, when they take their dose each day, it doesn't do anything except just keep them from feeling any withdrawal. But it also, it binds to the receptor so tightly that, that it's, it's very difficult for a person to overdose or even to feel another opioid once they're on that 16 to 24 milligram a day dose of buprenorphine. And so, so if I know that I'm not going to get high, as long as I'm taking my 16 milligrams of buprenorphine a day, the door is shut. 
Exactly. What's the point? And that's wonderful. Cravings go away. You know, people will will come in and 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 say, you know, gosh, I can't believe it. I found some oxycodone that I had stashed somewhere, and I was going to take it. And then I thought, why? I didn't. I didn't even want to take it. Um, you know. And, and you know, the wonderful thing about these two medications that people don't know. I think people in the lay community think that. The research is still ongoing, but it's actually done. We've got two decades. Buprenorphine has been available in this country since 2002 and in Europe before that, and tons of randomized control studies showing if you take buprenorphine or methadone, uh, maintenance long-term at high enough doses, 50% decrease overdose uh, rate and a 50% uh, fewer relapses and increased retention and treatment. Like what medications do you know promise that? Yeah, it's it's really made a, a huge difference, and um, we had talked earlier about um, you know that's still underutilized. There's still uh, a lot of work to do to get more people um, taking the right medication, and and um, and of course you know treatment is more than just taking the medication, and it's you know many people benefit from counseling while they're on the medication. Um, you know that that split that happens during active active addiction takes a long time to heal just takes a long long time to to get the person to feel like they're they're whole again and um getting back to the kind of in vitro versus in situ mm-hmm. um you know the the in situ nature of, of buprenorphine treatment a person is out there interacting with the world and then they can come back and they can talk either to the doctor or their counselor and say, you know, this is what happened. This is how I reacted. This is how I felt. And you can uh, hopefully provide some insight into why they felt that way and how maybe they could have handled something different. And, and it's a slow process of, of getting back to, to who they used to be. Now, um, can, you, can you say something about the stigma associated with buprenorphine and methadone and the struggles that you've witnessed your patients have had over the last uh, decade uh, trying to access these life-saving medications. What's the stigma? Yeah, it's too bad. You know, I, I, I wonder, I, 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 it can't be this simple, but I think initially part of it was from the abstinence-based community. You know, I, I know certainly uh, like in our local AA meetings, I, there's still a bias against someone who takes any psychiatric medication, but especially a medication that's going to help them stay sober, as if that's um, you know weak or or inferior in some way. Um, yeah. I'll say to people, um, you know, because they'll say I don't want to take that because that changes my body, and um, but I'll point out, getting a recovery based on abstinence requires a lot more change of your personality than taking a medication. I mean, if you, if you're going to, I, I did uh, make AA work. Um, you know, I went to a lot of meetings um, during my, my recovery, um, but it, you have to really work on your faith all of the time. And, and again, not that that's bad or anything, but um, I think we've all met um, oh, kind of the, the AA zealot, um, it, you know, it, there's something different about, um, about those people too. And so, um, I, I don't and, know. The and idea sometimes even with a guy that goes to AA or NA, gets a sponsor, works the steps and prays on his knees every day, 
abstinence with opioid use disorder is not as successful as it is with alcohol or cocaine or marijuana, right? Like the studies are showing that if you're trying to do the abstinence route, you know, like 85% of you are going to fail minimally. These drugs are very powerful, you know, and they they change your brain. They change your brain chemistry. And um, yeah, it's, it, it becomes something that's a lot more complicated than a choice. Yeah. Um, right. This is a different animal, isn't it? Sure. Yeah. Right? The stigma um, is still out there. You know, that uh, I'll have people tell me that their pharmacist will roll his or her eyes and say, well, you're still taking this or, you know, why ah. are you still on that? Or what do you need that for? And, um, just, you know, subtle things like that. And I'll, I'll, you know, assure them, gosh, you're doing the right thing. And it, it's funny how if a person you think about the, the effort we put into lowering cholesterol to reduce the theoretical, theoretical risk of a heart attack, um, but yet taking this medication to prevent the risk of relapse and overdose right. is frowned on. And it, it, it just, um, you know, there's a real inconsistency uh, with it, those. And it, it boggles the mind because there's fentanyl out there that, and the fentanyl is driving the overdose rate right? And every time you use it's Russian roulette, you you might die. Why not take a medication that has a 50% success rate at preventing your overdose death? Absolutely. Yeah. We, uh, back when I worked um, at the the methadone program where again, people um, would often come up uh, to don't like the word dirty, but come up with other drugs in their system. And uh, we would have people who, um, said that they used heroin, um, all they had in their body was fentanyl. And um, wow. even people who thought they were taking Xanax would test positive for fentanyl sometimes and not Alprazolam. So right. it, it's a it's a dirt cheap substance. And um, yeah, I, I read somewhere um, a year ago that uh, a rock of fentanyl, um, a gram costs like $16. And that would enough to kill, I don't know, thousands of people. Uh, They're very potent uh, and very dangerous opioids. So the Vivitrol shot, uh, I took a look at uh, some studies with Vivitrol and the XBOT study basically says it's really hard to induce, uh, uh, to get somebody clean for or in recovery with no drugs in their system, no heroin, no pain pills for 10 days. You need 10 days free of opioids before you can even give them the extended release naltrexone or the Vivitrol shot. And that's where it's very, very difficult to do, right? To keep somebody 10 days without any opioid in their system, right? People can't last until they get the Vivitrol shot. Absolutely. There's an old joke that I'm, I'm, to paraphrase, uh, I could hear a person saying, you know, if I could go 10 days, I wouldn't need the Vivitrol. Um, but Exactly. Uh, I know, like it, that. It and, just, yeah. And I think, also, uh, also, if you are um, uh, taking Vivitrol, you have no opioid in your system. So that that actually increases your risk of an overdose death because your tolerance is absolutely zero as opposed to methadone or buprenorphine where it's either a partial opioid or a full opioid agonist, much less chance of an overdose death if you're uh, on bup or methadone as opposed to Vivitrol shots, right? Absolutely. You know, and, and there's actually an inverse tolerance that, that happens when you're on an antagonist. And um, there were studies in Australia, I had them on my blog years ago, but they looked at uh, mortality rates in people after, I believe they may have been on oral, nilox, uh, oral naltrexone, 
Um, but at any rate, um, uh, they compared their mortality to people uh, on uh, coming out of methadone programs, and they had like a 12-fold higher uh, incidence of uh, death by overdose. And again, I'm not, not going to remember the details, mm -hmm. but, but the point is, as you said, that that tolerance is protective. When a person has a tolerance, that, you know, that's why the, the risk for death by overdose is so much higher when people get released from jail or when they right. get released from treatment, you know, when, right. because when they, their tolerance comes down, they, got, they have no protection uh, from the effects of opioids anymore. That's a good so. point. Absolutely. So what would you say to uh, somebody that says, is this just trading one addiction for another if you use buprenorphine, which is a partial opioid, or if you use uh, uh, methadone, which is a full opioid? It's, I guess I'd, I'd kind of turn it around and say first, well, what if it is? Okay, what if it is a replacement? Right. Um, you know, what, isn't that better? Wouldn't you rather take something once a day, twice a day that makes you feel normal, that you don't have to scramble for anything, um, where you, um, you know, the cost hopefully is either covered by your insurance or it's, it's you know, affordable for you rather than, you know, driving to the, the scariest areas and trying to find a drug dealer and, and you know, try to, to keep yourself from getting sick every eight hours. Um, so, right. um, you know, it's a pretty good replacement if it, if it is. Um, but I, I would say, you know, we're in the business of treating disease and, um, you know, this, this is a brain disease and uh, this really uh, is the best treatment that we have for it. And, and to be honest, it's hard to imagine anything much better. You know, some people will say, well, if I'm on Suboxone, you know, then if I stop it all of a sudden, I'm going to get sick. And um, well, yeah, if you stop buprenorphine, which is the generic name, yeah. um, in a couple of days, you are going to start having withdrawal, not near as severe as coming off heroin or fentanyl. Right. Um, but yeah, you have to taper uh, slowly to get off it. But at the same time, that keeps people taking it. You know, they, they aren't going to just stop it on a whim and forget that they, that they are at risk for something. So, you know, there's a flip side. There um, is. And, and people don't get high. The opioid tolerant people, that's people who have been taking pain pills daily for years or people using heroin, they don't get high on buprenorphine or methadone. They just feel normal. Absolutely. And, yeah. and addiction, my definition of addiction is, uh, well, actually the world's definition of addiction is I have consequences, like negative consequences, right? So sure. if I take buprenorphine, I'm, uh, I can show up for my kids. I can show up for work. I have friends. I don't get arrested. I don't crash my car. I don't go have emergency room visits because of accidents while I'm impaired. That sounds like I'm functioning at a high level. That doesn't sound like it even meets the definition of addiction, right? Sure. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a chemical dependence, just as there is if a person is on Effexor um, or on clonidine for blood pressure. Um, right. you know, there, there, there is a physical, uh, you know, a need to taper, which occurs with many medications. Um, but it's, it's not something that, that uh, compels a person to take it uh, like an addictive substance does. How are we going to get more buprenorphine prescribers in America? Because the last I heard, and this was 2020, less than 7% of physicians were actually uh, licensed to prescribe it. 
Well, as you know, there there have been uh, some changes. You know, there. I think the biggest uh, the, the the biggest value comes from the efforts of um, these agencies like uh, ASAM to. Um, to increase people that have the ability to prescribe it because it does require a certain waiver, uh, which um, the pathway involves eight hours of education and uh, a registration uh, as part of your DEA license, your ability to prescribe controlled substances. So there's a couple hassles involved, not major, but there's been a real effort to get people um, prescribing um, there are some models around the country uh, where uh, people are um, setting up systems where people, in fact, I read in Wisconsin in the Wall Street Journal a few months ago about uh, Aurora Healthcare, one of our big health networks, um, a doc there trying to set up a system. You know, I, I think individual doctors are reluctant to open up their practice uh, to patients with addictions either because they don't feel like they know enough or they're worried that um, you know, people are going to bring their problems into their, their clinic. Um, I think you're um, right. I think they have this preconceived notion of what it's like to treat people with addictions. But the truth is most of these folks have used Suboxone or buprenorphine on the street. <laughs> They'll come into my office and say, uh, yep, it'll take me 14 hours before I'm in moderate withdrawal. Then I'll start the Suboxone. I like the strips, not the tablets. And my dose is 20 milligrams a day. I'm like, gotcha. Thank you. Isn't that funny? Yeah. yeah. I, I, and, you know, the only thing is they're paying $30 a strip for it out there. And, you know, then they yeah. finally do the math and they realize, <laughs> gosh, I could see a doctor and I could get it prescribed and I don't pay for it. So, um, but yeah, yeah it, it is, you know, I heard the weirdest thing the other day, uh, a person had um, gone in for treatment to someone who prescribes Suboxone and, um, but he tested positive for buprenorphine, so they wouldn't give it to him until he tested negative for all substances. Was, oh, my God. Well, that's that's kind crazy. Of crazy. I would think, well, you don't be saving me the trouble of doing an induction and, you know, you, you're, you're all set to go. But I, um, I, I tell you, um, uh, we're going to have to come to a close, but it's enraging to watch these young people die, isn't it? When we have life-saving medications that are available and they're research-supported. I think we need to lose the stigma, don't we? We do. And the numbers, the deaths keep going up. You know, I, I thought they peaked at 70,000, you know, 80,000, right. 90,000 in the last year. And um, this is truly a, a, a national, you know, a, a global emergency. And, you know, and a I, medical disaster if we go back to look at the pain pill prescribing that was over-prescribing, yeah. you know, in the 90s, and then the big pharma's uh, input, and then they get the pain pills off the street without expanding treatment for addiction, and people go, of course, to heroin. The, yeah. This is needless. It's, it's, uh, it's a needless iatrogenic problem. Now, Dr. Junig, I can't thank you enough. I'm, I'm so happy to have you here on the show, but I'm also really happy that you were born. Uh, I really, you've been a longtime advocate of buprenorphine prescribing, and uh, you've just supported the people struggling to find the right answers in all the chaos that is our medical system. You've been the one beacon of hope that makes sense and actually answers his patients back on this blog. And I really, I think you're a modern day hero, and I, I, I wish you all the very best uh, in your future endeavors. Uh, you're gonna, uh, you're you're continuing to practice uh, uh, full time. So all the best to you, sir. We're gonna have to go. Thank you. You're very kind, and I, I really enjoyed being here. Um, and I I love the work you're doing as well. Thank you very much.
And anyone, feel free to go on my blog and you can find my contact information and I will answer you if you uh, send me an email. A real life hero, everybody. (laughs) Thanks, Dr. Junig. Thank you, doctor. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us this week. Recovery, the hero's journey is broadcast every Tuesday at 12 noon Pacific time and 3 p.m. Eastern time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. As you wait for our next program, remember, you are definitely not alone.